The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to The Waves for Thursday, July 11th, Hannah and Noreen's last show. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia. In the New York studios, we have the lovely June Thomas, senior managing producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Hi, June. Hey, Hannah. Where do you think the convention of the lovely comes from? Do you know what I mean? Like how yeah. that trips off your tongue and you're like, the lovely this one? Does that come from cheesy television or game shows or what? Hi, Noreen. Sorry. And Noreen Malone from New York Magazine. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not lovely. lovely. The unlovely. The come on. You're not lovely. <laughs> and the lovely Noreen Malone. I think it might Where come from beauty pageants. Lovely. Oh, wow. Doesn't it sound like a beauty oh, pageant intro? fuck. Really? <laughs> but here's the thing. Like, who's watched a beauty pageant, even ironically, in many years? So, like, how could that have... have like gotten inside our language so so efficiently but it feels very 1940s and yeah, the lovely yeah. Noreen yeah, yeah. Malone yeah so like TV intro TV MC kind of thing yeah just inherited mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. yeah okay well I take it back then um, before we get started, as some of you might know, this is the last show for me and Noreen, although the waves will continue to go strong with its new cast and also with June. I really, oh my God, do I want to thank our listeners for the most beautiful emails and notes you wrote. They, some of them actually made me cry. Chang, I'm talking to you, who talked about, well, this one's kind of like, it's about me, so I'm just going to say it, but it was so sweet. It was like, you're the older sister I never had note, which I thought was so dear. Um, And then there's Lauren H., who's quietly weeping under my sunglasses. Um, Anyway, don't you guys feel that way? I just felt genuinely touched by the kind of intimate, personal nature of some of the notes that we got when we announced that we were leaving. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm like sort of verklempt over them. Yeah, were, yes. nice because yeah. often people write in to tell us when we're doing something yes. wrong. Yes. You know, yes. Uh, yes. And now this was like people who've who've sort of been silent and and telling us now that like oh thank you that was really lovely to get. Yeah, and also just to kind of get like affirmation of things like you know when we do our recommendations, is it just a, th- a thing that we do at the end of the show? But a lot of people wrote and said I, I you know you've given me such great book recommendations. I know also just from Twitter that people like our TV recommendations like it felt like it was just saying that what we do isn't just a routine that we go through but that people actually find it useful which was really gratifying and nice to know yeah okay all right so our topics for today the problem with HR in the Me Too era HR being Hannah Rosen in the Me Too era I never thought of that. I just wrote it out. And I was like, wait a minute. What do you mean the problem with HR? I have no problems. Second, we are going to talk about the miserable Jeffrey Epstein case and what it's really about. And finally, Fleischman is in Trouble, the new novel by Taffy Brodisher Ackner, an astute commentary on marriage and the novels that we write about it. And then in our Slate Plus segment, June slash Beyonce. Do you want to say what we're talking about? I don't know what that's about, but... um, (laughs) I Yes, in our Slate Plus segment, we will be asking, is the Lion King sexist? And I'm going to say no more about it because you, if you are a member of Slate Plus, which would allow you to support Slate's journalism and also get your podcasts ad-free and often with special segments like The Waves, Is It Sexist? Here's a preview of that discussion. You can join Slate Plus by going to slate.com slash The Waves Plus. Yeah, I mean, this kind of blew my mind because I thought of the Lion King as like, the non-problematic Disney movie of my yes. childhood, right? Like I, I grew up watching Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid, which in retrospect, um, you know, maybe not 
such great visions of of womanhood and but like the lion king was just like a tale of a kid and the you know and the serengeti and the 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 warthogs and whatever i didn't have it filed in my head as problematic it was sort of the beginning of the era of like good disney but no (laughs) all right let's jump into our first topic the hr department why is it funny just when you say hr it's funny i think it's just because of shows like the office that like it's just so easy to make fun of hr departments i mean we'll get there but it's just there is something inherently funny though it's kind of not funny because of me too but we'll also anyway because because hr departments are usually women so there's a lot of sexism in our attitude to all right. I'm not even. Why should? Why do I need the introduction? I'm going to skip it. It's mentioned in Me Too stories. That's good enough. Women who complain about sexual harassment. It's like they pass through the HR department on their way to nowhere is basically what generally happens. So we're going to talk about HR, its insidious role that it's played in perpetuating the problem or maybe not or maybe not. Maybe there's something we're missing about the HR department. This, by the way, got launched by Caitlin Flanagan, who did a very um, delightful story in a recent Atlantic about HR departments and the role they played. So why don't we start with some examples, like HR mentions in the stories that we all know, like Susan Fowler, who complained about Uber, and she talked about going to the HR department and the role that the HR department serves. Uh, Can you guys think of an example or just a pin in people's minds, like how has the HR department become a player in the last couple of years? Well, I thought Caitlin Flanagan's opening to her piece was really interesting, that she went off to an HR convention, effectively, a convention for HR professionals or a gathering. And she was kind of expecting a lot of kind of breast beating and, and like saying sorry for, for me too. Um, she saw everything that's happened with, you know, from, from Weinstein on down as an example of the failure of HR. And she thought there would be a lot of, of kind of, you know, interrogation of the, of the role and all of that. And she found that that wasn't the case, that that was not the attitude of the HR professionals who were at that convention or who talked to her. And um, actually, Can I... Can you just say what it was called? Because the name was so, like, delightful and made up, but it was true. So the convention that Caitlin Flanagan visited was called Work Human. And I think that is, <laughs> you know, which makes some people laugh. And I think that does point to one of the problems that people have with HR, that like there's a lot of euphemisms, that there are a lot of sort of very careful and very like the kinds of things that in the very early days of women's lib, people used to kind of joke about things like person holes or, you know, just like instead of manholes, I should say, Um, you know, like just weird, you know, like where you're just (laughs) avoiding words for the sake of it. Um, And I think people often associate that with HR, in fact, even the very concept of human resources. And one of the very strong parts of Caitlin Flanagan's piece was kind of pointing out that, you know, it's, it's odd to think of humans as indeed a resource, but along with sort of facilities and capital and equipment, they are kind of the, the pillars of productivity. And it's, it's you know, hard to, to kind of conceive us of ourselves, we workers, as just another component in a, in a product, but that is actually the case. And I think, too, that just this general sense of HR as being those people who make it so that we have to do those silly trainings and waste our time, uh, you know, answering obvious questions. I personally do not take this view. I think HR, when done well, can be hugely just beneficial to a company and can really uh, change a company. Um, But in, in Caitlin Flanagan's 
piece, she was essentially pointing out that HR is there for the company well, and right. to protect the company. June, that's what you just said, though. It's hugely beneficial for the company. You yeah. didn't say for the worker. No. Right? Yeah, so, but, yeah. but uh, no, I think that's absolutely true. And I think that's what this maybe put into sharp relief, the, the piece and also just the Me Too movement, is that like the whole vibe of HR is come talk to us, come tell us your problems, we'll help you solve them, we'll help you like make your way through this really confusing stuff about your 401k, but we are here for you. But actually they are there for the company and nowhere is this maybe clearer than in cases of sexual harassment where the major role of HR is to ensure that the company is not liable for whatever may have gone down, right? Like that part of the role of those trainings those trainings that all these companies do, I think my company did it. I don't really remember. But it's it's to protect yourself legally, right? Like mm-hmm. it doesn't, there's no evidence that shows like t- telling people that grabbing your coworker's breast is harassment will, you know, reduce reduce sexual harassment in the workplace. But it does sort of dot the I, cross the T, so that if there is a complaint, you can say, oh, like we had a training, we told people how to report it, and she didn't really report it the right way. Well, I definitely think that it would be, just ridiculously naive to think that like HR is just there for you and and just have this kind of this soft focus view of um, you know this this warm friendly place that's that's there to help you. At the same time, I do think it's ridiculous to think that although yes they are put in place if essentially to protect the company, they do do good things. Like if you have a good sexual harassment training, if you as a company have a mission statement about, for example, inclusion or uh, you know, non-harassment, non, uh, then if you keep repeating that statement and if you are serious about the training and if everybody in the company is bought into it, I think you really can remove that behavior. And Oh, you, no way. You're going to change human nature with a couple training? Yes. Or, oh. you, you, or, you know, I think we've seen that in recent times. I think that, we, that it used to be okay, especially for men, let's just say it, for men to say and do certain things. And I think everybody knows it's no longer okay. And but people are still doing it. Yeah, because humans are still human. And, right. and humans are, there are some who are, who are, I mean, and that is the difficulty that humans are can be cruel, humans can be manipulative, humans can be nasty and exploitative. They can also be kind and, and nice. Um, but <laughs> but so so you do have to, you know, have these policies in place. But I think for those people who aren't evil, kind of saying this is not OK, really can kind of get rid of that. That no way. There no way. There's evidence that shows that that so so sure, if in a perfect world, a seamless world where there are no sort of judgments and everything just goes as it should, that you sexual harassment happens even though this training, you know, has occurred and, and someone reports it and, and the harasser is dealt with and the woman goes on her way and proceeds up the ladder. That's not the way it works in the real world. Even if you do sort of follow the letter of the law and self-report your sexual harassment to the HR department, it turns out to totally affect your career. Like there's actual data backing this up that, and it, by the way, affects your career a lot more if you report it yourself rather than if a bystander right. reports it. But then it. again, like it, part of HR training should be about being a good bystander, which I was just like... This is. See, here's the thing. I, and I realize company woman, I know. Jim. I realize that, and I and I I hear myself. 
And I just think, though, that there's a reflection here of like Caitlin Flanagan being the kind of writer she is. Of course, she's going to like go for certain sort of odd or funny. She's going to like really lean into the into the silly name of the convention. She's going to lean into those trainings, which are annoying. But I think the that is also a reflection of how writers tend to be individual contributors. And as you become a manager and as you kind of are, have maybe more influence in a company, you do see more about why things are important. And yes, they are about protecting the company, but not exclusively. I'm I'm not arguing with the point of HR more generally. Um, I think that we've seen in recent years that these small companies in particular where HR is deprioritized, there's mm-hmm. often um, way more rampant uh, sexual harassment. The, the most recent example being this company, um, this women's media website, babe.net, where mm-hmm. there was no HR department and a lot of blurring of lines. Um, but like, <laughs> do you, I mean, it's, it, you know, okay, so here t- is what crystallizes it for me yeah. on this particular, on the sexual harassment issue in particular. The thing that launched the Me Too movement was not Susan Fowler and Uber. The thing that launched the Me Too movement was Harvey Weinstein. Um, and m- most of the cases of the women who were accusing him were not women who worked for him in a traditional yeah. HR yep. Uh, sense like in some ways this movement happened despite HR and in defiance of HR Mm -hmm. and like as a reaction to HR's sort of flaccidness in the face of all of this yeah and I really don't know what we're gonna do in the you know as we move more toward a gig economy I mean there isn't HR or any equivalent for freelancers and you know that there is a lot of potential for exploitation in that scenario Hannah, I know you've been conspicuously silent. She's rating our, our performance on a scale of <laughs> 1 to 10 and tying it to our salary with a 2% bonus if we uh, perform. Absolutely. We'll have an offsite to discuss. Great. Great. Um, yeah, I think this is a timeline question. I mean, what this moment did for me of shining the light on HR is realizing that you should stop thinking of it as a joke, as it often is in yeah. office sitcoms, and and really just kind of focus on the absolutely insidious, dangerous role that it played and that HR people work for the company, and you have mm-hmm. to be absolutely clear about that. They yeah. do exactly what the company says, and they're there to legally protect the company, and that's not funny. And the fact that it's mostly women working in HR is just like an extra ironic twist, you know, where you put women who effectively have no power uh, in the organization, and that's why they end up in this situation. So it's not that funny. And so now we actually, like, focus on that and know that, because in all of these cases, HR departments, you know, or not in all of these cases, but, you know, and and maybe it just means being realistic. We expected too much of them in the first place. They're not a union. You know, the union protects workers. HR departments protects the company. Just remember that, everybody. Remember that, you know. Um, um, I guess, but the but actually, then this whole conversation is a little bit irrelevant because of what you said, June, the gig economy. And June, I think you know you're you're like it's it's oh my god, it's uh, <laughs> what's the right non patronizing word when the word in my head is cute? I'm like <laughs> it's not. <laughs> It's just so patronizing, but it's like, no, like the, the, it's the culture that made, it's not the HR, there was no like revolution of HR departments, which made it unacceptable for people to do certain things in the workplace. It was the shaming. It was like the cultural shaming and the kind of huge movement that 
you know, in which people like lost their jobs. Of That's course. What no, absolutely. You know, people yeah. were fired. Like there's no yeah. HR department in my workplace or anybody else's workplace that fired any of the, you know, hundreds slash thousands of mostly men who were fired. It was the culture that got them fired. You know, you just like it was the media. It's like you couldn't hide anymore. And so that's scary. And that's why you don't make a pass at someone because, you know, look where you end up. No, I mean, absolutely. It's not like HR is this this force that's separate from the rest of the world. I just think that it's too easy to make fun of, you know, the, the slogans and the trainings and the and I think there is a lot of sexism because although it's a it's not 100 percent female career, it's I think 75 percent. Most HR professionals are women. And I also think that it's one of those things where like when I worked at a big company, when I worked at Microsoft, I think there was absolutely zero doubt that in a big company like that and in a very rich company like that, there that HR is just absolutely a, a compliance arm of the company. And it's just it's just making sure that uh, that all the legal it's it's definitely a, a dotting and crossing kind of situation but, but isn't it also like the real thing is who sets the tone like if bill Ga- like if the people at the top are kind of reasonable humans i mean we'll, we're getting into our next topic jeffrey yeah, epstein yeah, exactly. which this is exactly what we're going to discuss yeah. but like how people behave what behavior is winked at what's allowed yeah, what people exactly. are choosing not to notice like exactly. that's what matters yeah and absolutely yeah. and that's why i think you know hr there are there is nothing worse, I think, than an ineffective or unsupported or just unmotivated HR department. That's why if you have a really good HR department, it really does make a difference. It won't solve all of the problems in the world. But if you and but you absolutely have to have a mission for the company. They don't have any secret uh, formulas. They don't have anything except these training. But you know what? If the if you keep repeating, you cannot do this. You cannot repeat. You cannot do this. Yes, yeah, sure. That does. You know, it's, it prevents you from being legally liable, but it also just repeats to people, you cannot do that. You cannot do that. And it's not just HR doing it, but I just think that it's actually very useful. But the HR scenarios are so comical. They're well, like they're like cliche cartoons. And then you're also presuming that people stay awake through HR yeah. presentations well, and, here's and the don't thing. just like yeah. click through the Wait, video. wait, wait. But they've gotten better. We, we've gotten, now had, I mean, yeah. I, they've gotten better. Like we've now had the next round of sort of sexual harassment training yeah. and, um, and kind of uh, unconscious bias training. And I think I would say they of like in the decade since the last time I worked at a big company and took them in which it was like, you know, big meaty man puts his hand on your bosom. You know, it's like it's like that, you know, now they are actually reflect what goes down, what possibly goes down in a workplace much better than they used to. I agree. The trainings have gotten much better. But I also think that we are in a particular field where we all I think actually probably quite rightly think that we we already know this and it's wasting our time and we don't need this. At the same time, everybody who's, you know, who thinks they're clever and thinks they already know this in those workplaces, things happen. So like clearly people do kind of need it. I just I just don't buy that reporting (laughs) necessarily works. Although one thing that sort of hardened me, although it speaks more towards the culture changing than towards the efficacy of HR, is that since the Me Too movement, the same study that showed that women who self-reported harassment didn't, you know, were reviewed poorly, or that difference has 
almost entirely disappeared, that women who self-report harassment are no longer um, thought of as sort of unpromotable by people in this in taking doing this study. Yes. Um, which was kind I love of that. amazing. Yeah. 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 No, I totally love that. I, I feel like we got to stop talking about the HR. Okay. <laughs> it's amazing how deep in we got. You know what I really want to say is like, I, if any of you have experiences with the HR department, please share them with the waves at slate.com. Um, you know, we'll look at them and the next show may decide to take them on. But who does not love a good HR story? They're just delicious. And we can also say that since we've all recommended This Could Hurt by Jillian Medoff, we'll recommend it again at the end of the segment. It's a great novel. About I was an just going to bring it up. And it, it's about uh, the, the soul of an HR department and how it actually has heart, which is nice. Yeah, it's fabulous. It will change. It will. It's on Team June about the HR department <laughs> for sure. All right. Our next topic, the despicable Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> Jesus Christ, is it hard to read these stories? It's like a Stanley Kubrick hell. Like it's just is this actually really how the world works? I mean, it's just horrifying. Anyway, jet setting. Maybe he's a billionaire. Maybe he isn't. Maybe he's just a multimillionaire. Jeffrey Epstein just was recently charged with child sex trafficking in cases involving up to possibly 80 teenage, I repeat, teenage girls. Uh, he His method was allegedly to lure these girls who were somewhat vulnerable to his houses for massages, possibly sex, asking them to recruit their friends. And the thing about Epstein is that he is friends with lots of rich and important people. Um, we will name some of them uh, going on, but it really does add to a picture of conspiracy that I feel is like back to Weinstein. I mean, the yes. reason that this is getting so much attention is because it like this of all the stories leads you back to the mindset you have had when you first read about Harvey Weinstein, which is just, oh, my God, is there like a network of secrecy and protection that is totally invisible to us and just shocking, like so shocking. It doesn't even, you know, in our world weary uh, ways, it just barely seems true. So let's get into the details of what he is alleged to have done. Now, he's already been convicted and had a plea deal once. So let's just start at the beginning and kind of lay out the facts of what he was already accused of and what he is now accused of. So so Epstein has several different homes, one of which is in the greater Miami area. I believe it's actually in Palm Beach. Um, and in 2008, a, a, a girl came forward to the Miami police saying that um, she had been recruited and lured to his mansion to um, do, as with many of these girls, a nude massage that led to sexual acts, forced sexual acts. And when the police investigated, they found that there was essentially a network of underage girls who had been lured there and exploited. The crime seemed like it could be federally prosecuted. The The local police went to the FBI. The FBI investigated. And the problem was that the so the U.S. attorney in the Miami area at that time was now a member of uh, Trump's cabinet, Acosta, who is now the labor secretary of the United States, um, cut a pretty insane plea bargain with Epstein. Um, he says, he now says uh, that it was to make sure that Epstein, with all of his money and power, actually went to jail. Um, but what actually ended up happening is instead of being charged with sex trafficking, which was the original charge, the charges were lessened such that Epstein 
was, although technically sentenced to jail, was allowed to go to work six days a week. And so he just really spent one day a week in in prison, um, which is really extraordinary. Can we just pause on that? Because it's like he's there six days a week. So he's not just merely allowed to do his work. He's allowed to be a workaholic. Like he's allowed <laughs> to work, you know, Monday through Saturday, you know, just because his work is so important. He needs like an extra day to get it done. Right, right. Um, which is really just extraordinary, especially because no one exactly knows what he does. Right. That's the other thing that's emerged from this. I'd always heard of him referred to as a money manager or a hedge funder, but it, but it seems like he maybe only has one client. Um, it's unclear what he actually does for him. That's I mean that's also like we're getting into conspiracy theory land, mm-hmm. but like you know is is the procurement of girls in some way part of his business? Like what? Like why why were there so many? So anyway, so he uh. You know, and he's added to the sex offender registry. So flash forward to um, the fall of 2018, um, a woman who was actually a freelancer with the Miami Herald um, investigates what actually happened with Epstein and talks to a number of women. And this sort of reopens it. Um, Acosta being labor secretary sort of put it back in the news. And then the Southern District of New York, where Epstein also has a home, arrested Epstein last weekend in New York, they raided his house. They found a bunch of CDs with pictures of young girls nude, which might lead to other charges. But for right now, what he's being charged with is sex trafficking because he did the same thing in New York as he did in or he allegedly did the same thing in New York as he did in Miami. So I think that kind of brings us up to date. Although then we get into the whole mess of, you know, why why was this just sort of an open secret for so long right like it was sort of like almost a punchline I almost think even back in like high school I knew Bill Clinton had been on Ron Burkle's jet with Jeffrey Epstein and it was like gross but like Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't it had never been like reported like Jeffrey Epstein is you know a molester of teenage girls right like had it ever been fully reported I don't think so it was just sort of this like these sleazy men like young girls, ha ha ha, kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the photos, there are photos of, you know, Trump and Melania and Epstein and whoever his girl is at the moment. And if you think, you know, the people who are mentioned, I'm sure there were a lot of people on his private jet, like this prince, that duke, you know, so many famous people, but it's like also Michael Jackson and also Bill Clinton. So just insinuations that there's just a kind of silent understanding between men with certain proclivities to protect each other or to understand each other in some way, or at the very least not to rat each other out. So that's horrifying because, as you said, Noreen, people knew. It's like Harvey Weinstein, like Mm -hmm. people knew, you know, or he was at parties with lots of different people and his dates were often, you know, 16. And, and, and so, so maybe people didn't know precisely exactly that he was recruiting vulnerable teenagers and having sex with them, but people knew something, you know. So why, like why? What, why? What's the system that protects men like him? How should we think about that system? And, uh, and, and why was it never let out? I mean, I think we don't, it's still too early in this particular round of the story to, to have the answers to that. But it sure seems like being a rich guy, however you got your money, you know, this is going to be a shocking news flash to a lot of people. But being a rich guy can 
get you out a lot of trouble. A rich guy with connections, a rich guy who seems to know a lot of important people, a rich guy who acts like he's super smart, who, you know, is is considered, a, you know, a great thinker, uh, even though, you know, everybody who's spoken to him says, I don't know where that impression came from. Um, like, well, of course they don't, you know, of course the, the rules that apply to other people don't apply to them. I mean, look at our president. I think it's actually like, a little more universal than that. I think people think it's just not that bad, right? Like someone might have been at a party and been like, "Oh, he's got a young girl with him." And I think there's there's something where we think like it's okay. She's like she might be 16, but like 16's not 12, you know. Mm-hmm. And 16 yeah, isn't so 12. Yeah, so he made that defense. Right. <laughs> he made that defense and I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that's the super uncomfortable part of this case mm-hmm. is like he's legally a child molester, but the defense he makes morally of himself which, which has come out not a lot, but you know, in an, in 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 sort of in, in in dribs is like he in his head makes a big distinction between young young girls and young girls, mm. you know, between 13 and 15. It, it's it's like if you look at human history, like a Jeffrey Epstein, you know, was not unusual, but <laughs> we're not living yeah. in the Middle Ages anymore. And we know a lot more about sexual trauma. Uh, we know a lot more just about the way that this plays out for people psychologically. There's a reason that our laws are written the way that they're mm-hmm. written. Right. I mean, Priscilla Presley was like Mm -hmm. 14. I'm just thinking of cases like Jerry Lee Lewis of like Mm -hmm. famous people who were into 14 and 15 year olds. And it was just like, oh, that's cute. Young love. Yeah. And people still can marry very young women in a lot of states of this country. But, you know, so it's not like this is entirely in the past. I mean, we've seen this over and over again. You know, in Britain, there have been some very famous cases of appalling, huge scale effectively child molestation involving famous people, I should say, celebrities. And it was almost always done in the open, you know, that Mm -hmm. people would even be on tape making lascivious comments as, you know, 50-year-old men about 14-year-old girls. And, you know, surprise, they were involved with 14-year-old girls. It's, it's, we did used to be more tolerant of this, and I don't think we should pretend that we weren't. And it was always awful. And we're still a culture that values youth, right? So it's this it's this like weird, complicated, mixed message thing where like youth like supreme youth, like the minute someone turns eighteen, like, you know, I, I uh, ten years ago I think there were like countdowns to when the oh Olsons are longer right. than ten years ago, but when the Olsons were gonna turn eighteen, right? There's like that kind of thing. It's like when you're seventeen and like three quarters, you're you're not eligible but then you become 18 and all of a sudden you're like the hottest thing in the world until you you know um, at 25 fall off the face of the earth right so there's they're like these mixed messages in the culture that are still ongoing so so someone like Epstein you know might be venerated for getting like a young hot chick or whatever in certain circles I think one thing that we should just note too is that another part of the the awful plea deal that he got in Florida was that the charges were around prostitution related offenses which meant that the girls that he was abusing were considered prostitutes, um, which, you know, yes, money exchanged hands, but this was not, you know, they were victims. And wasn't it hush money, essentially? Yeah, exactly. You know, if this was not a case of, you know, sex workers uh, and uh, who are, you know, being 
in the gig economy. These were young women who were being taken advantage of. Well, and that's why the charge now is sex trafficking, exactly. even though it's not like smuggling them across borders. Right. They were sort of um, pressured into it, groomed. Um, I want to go back because I, I felt just some discomfort around the way we were talking about the young women as if what he's being accused of is just he's accused of rape. I mean, the the, mm-hmm. women, the, the young women or girls, their range in ages and when they're coming forward are accusing him of actual rape. There's, you know, if you, I mean, you couldn't keep up fast enough with the girls slash young women coming out of the woodwork. You know, there's a couple every day, like on Fox yeah. News and this newspaper, that newspaper is sort of coming out to accuse him, but the word they're using is rape. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to point that out. And... I also want to point out that it, that the Miami Herald, uh, there's a dogged reporter there who broke this story, is a woman. So as usual with a lot of these stories, um, it's, you know, <laughs> it is due to the dogged efforts of female reporters who are tuned in. Same thing happened in Vanity Fair where it was a female reporter who was charged with doing a profile of him and a male editor who cut this part out of the profile where she had found a mom and her daughter, a mom who had accused him of raping her daughter. After pressure from Epstein, after direct pressure, after him going to the Vanity Fair offices and sitting down with Graydon Carter and, and, you know, basically saying, convincing him, it seems like that this was not germane to the story, that this wasn't the main thing. All right. Well, another monster down. Thank God. Well, we'll see, right? I mean, I hope so. And it does seem like, you know, the photographs also bring in a new level of charges. But, you know, he is so rich and he is so well connected. I, you know, he's I don't know if he's quite down yet. I think he's I hope he's I don't want to say fatally injured. I don't obviously don't mean that literally. But like, I hope he's down. But he is so rich and he is so well connected. I wonder I would have thought he would have been down before, but he was apparently able to continue to to do these dreadful things. Yeah, which again, I think it just means that in certain circles, people think it's not that bad. Yeah, I also think it's a larger criminal justice problem Mm -hmm. where income inequality in criminal justice outcomes is insane. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we, we touch on this in little ways, like crack cocaine versus cocaine. Mm-hmm. Like, we've it's, it's come up in, in discussions here and there, but it's just shocking how the differential outcomes in almost every kinds of case it is, is determined by how much money you have. Absolutely. Um, it's weird. Yep. Okay. Well, I'm glad we got a chance for outrage in our last topic, in our last show. I'm really glad for that. All right. I am excited to talk about this novel. I read it very quickly. Fleischman is in trouble. It's a new novel by Taffy Brodesser Ackner. It tells the story of a dissolving marriage from the perspective of her husband, Toby, until suddenly it doesn't. Now, listeners, here is where I'm going to jump in and assume this is my last damn episode of The Waves <laughs> Privilege. It is go- it is really hard to talk about this novel without spoiling it because it has a pretty complicated structure, which if we can't talk about it, it just is a little stifling. So I'm going to say that if you haven't read the novel, you really should skip this segment. Go and read the novel. It's a very quick read. And then come back and listen to the segment. I'm sorry. If you want to listen to it, that's great. But we are going to spoil <laughs> critical bits of the novel. Anyway, so to continue with the sentence I was saying, it's from the perspective of the husband and then it suddenly isn't. And it brings the women into the picture, his agent wife, Rachel, his college friend, Libby. 
It's a subtle and convincing portrait, but also its real project, which is how and when women count, comes through pretty clearly. So should we start by describing the characters? Uh, Noreen, you want to take a shot at Toby? What kind of guy is he? He's a doctor. Um, he's, he's you know, he's he's in the range of a, of a appealing but selfish like he's like nobody's an extreme in this novel which is the thing I find most interesting about it like nobody's exactly an asshole you know it's all in a kind of range of believable so why don't we just start with Toby since he hogs a good bit of this novel sure Toby Fleischman is in his early 40s he is a liver doctor I believe (laughs) yes which is a side hepatologist I I have a pet theory have I, that's why I said liver doctor because I can't say it but I also have a pet theory mm. that it's like in some way a call out to Portnoy's complaint with the liver ah. um, yes. because she is trying to do some kind of like Roth thing here anyway he is he works at a you know a fancy hospital he has a good job where he makes you know what would in any place other than the Upper East Side of New York be a ton of money but he thinks of himself as sort of very middle class especially compared to his wife um, he's you know in the throes of a divorce he he is on Tinder in a very big way, and he is feeling sexual confidence for what feels like maybe the first time. He um, he's a short man mm-hmm. um, that that becomes a recurring theme. He's a short man who's like concerned about his weight because he had been heavy. So he has he has all of these. He has this kind of like body consciousness that you more often associate with women, which yes. was kind of an interesting yes. move. He is a devoted father. And he thinks that his ex-wife... Maybe. Maybe. Right. In, in maybe. Well, in the first half of the novel, uh-huh. we are given to understand that Toby Fleischman is... And believe. Right. Is is uh, mm-hmm. a great father and his wife only cares about her work, right? She cares her work about work and, and social money. Climbing. She's a social climbing, you yeah. know, money grubber who doesn't care about her kids. That's, well, her that's, kids are tool. Like she cares about her kids in so far as they fit into the social environment in a very, very particular way. So, like they have to get into the right schools, they have to do this, they have to do that. Like she cares about them to that degree, right? And then, so yeah. that's the Toby perspective. And then, Hannah, do you want to? Or June, do one of you want to tell us about how it shifts in the second half? It's actually later than the. It, it's later than half. I mean, um, one thing I think about in this novel, because I became impatient. Once I finished the novel, I sort of was annoyed that I had to spend so much time with Toby, you know, that like you could have, you could have, you could have drawn, I understand what it was doing is drawing me into Toby's perspective, making his perspective, like making me sink into it in a way that I didn't, that I just didn't even think about, that I was not self-conscious, like I didn't think twice about, but, but, but it, but it did that, you know, like extra super duper thoroughly. Mm -hmm. But then it made me think, oh, well, maybe that is another thing that this not this this novel has a hall of mirrors quality where it's like you think it's about this and then it's about this but then it's reflected back at this and one thing is it makes you think about who gets to take up space so Mm -hmm. like this little man um (laughs) little in stature Mm -hmm. (laughs) actually takes up a huge amount of space i mean you live inside his head you know if you literally just kind of weighed the novel and took the toby pages and put them on the scale like he takes up a ton of space Mm -hmm. where actually the kind of turmoil and drama is happening with Rachel, his wife. It's just that she is is squeezed into a much more narrow space, even though she's the one actually having a breakdown and, to me, going through the much more intense, intense transformation. Mm-hmm. And then there's this sort of final twist, which is his friend Libby, his college friend Libby, who's popped up here and there, but it turns out has actually the 
author of this book. And so she's a kind of ether over the book. She doesn't exactly take up space. She just kind of, she's she's the kind of air, like the, she just comes into the cracks of the novel. And so I think like literally architecturally, the novel is kind of making a point with mm-hmm. with with space, you know. And the, and the sort of talismanic key to the whole thing is Libby, before she stopped working to stay at home with her kids in New Jersey, which she sort of hates, wrote for men's magazines. And she talks about how people will only pay attention to a story if it's about men, which like when you say it like that, it sounds a little bit on the nose, but that's sort of, and Taffy Bredesser-Agner used to write for GQ. She writes magazine profiles. She sometimes writes about men. She sometimes writes about women. But that is clearly the idea that she's prosecuting in this book, right? Mm-hmm. She didn't want her book to be dismissed as chiclet, and but she also wanted to do a more interesting thing than like Jennifer Weiner, who goes and complains about how everyone writes about her chiclet as chiclet, right? Mm-hmm. And this is not chiclet. I'm not, I'm not right. saying that it's chiclet. I'm just saying that like it's a sort of sophisticated trick and statement about the way we read novels mm-hmm. and talk about yeah, novels. Yeah, because in fact, she. Libby has written a book that's largely about a man. Um, I mean, that is functionally what this book is. It's like largely. You mean Taffy? Taffy man. Or, or Libby? Are we complaining? Taffy slash Libby. <laughs> taffy slash Libby. Like if Libby is a Taffy character who spent who has spent her career writing about a man. In fact, she's the author of this novel we have just read. Within the novel, she wrote the story of Toby, and so she did, in fact, spend a lot of time writing a novel about a man. What did you think about the on? Like there are points when the novel jumps out. Like I, you know, this this has been quoted in a lot of the reviews. This line, whatever kind of woman you are, even when you're a lot of kinds of women you're still always just a woman, which is to say you're a little bit less than a man. Did you need those things? No. Do you know what I mean? There are parts when it just like jumped out in that way. Yeah, there were a few sort of, I don't know, aperçu, you know, a few things that that if you were reading it on a Kindle would probably be underlined because many people had highlighted them as they were reading. But they didn't take me out of the book. They weren't necessary, but I didn't find them, you know, they didn't spoil the book for me and I think if you're a writer probably that's one of the sort of magazine writer things that like a magazine writer if you can plant two or three of those good lines in a piece like that's a definite plus for a magazine piece and I think you don't need them in novels you can be less showy in in this kind of novel anyway and I think but it didn't bother me yeah I mean that stuff felt on the nose where where I was interested in the sort of thinking about gender that the that she was doing was what money means in a marriage, mm-hmm. what like who makes the money, how that dictates who has the power. And even if you have the power in a marriage, that doesn't necessarily mean good things for your marriage. Right. So uh, during the Toby section, you know, he goes to a divorce lawyer who tells him that functionally because he makes he makes something like three hundred thousand dollars. He makes like two hundred and fifty. Yeah. yeah. And and but his wife is a very successful talent agent makes, you know, untold amounts where she can buy a Hamptons house just sort of on, on a whim, it seems. Um, anyway, the divorce attorney tells him that functionally he's the woman. Right. Mm-hmm. Like he has he has this nice, cute job. As a, as a doctor, but but he he is the like distaff spouse. Mm-hmm. I, I I found it sort of bleak on the subject of what it does when a woman makes more money than a man in a marriage. Well, there are a lot of things where it's bleak. It's funny there was an interview in the Guardian that was yeah fine, but not hugely remarkable. But it had this phrase like the, I think the question was something like this book is very bleak about ambition, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that. That's a very accurate representation. Like it's bleak about ambition. It's bleak about money. 
it's bleak about sort of understanding each other. Like there's there's both Rachel and Toby feel that the other is very angry. They feel that the other one is angry and they don't understand the source of the anger. And I guess the whole point of the book in many ways is just that they don't understand each other. There's a there's a lack of comprehension. They 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 believe they Toby especially he sure he understands Rachel and he is absolutely he's just totally wrong about her. He doesn't get her at all. And the same thing with the Libby marriage, right? Where she has stopped working. Her husband's a lawyer and he he works. She stays home with the kids and she has sort of like a like a room spring. Yeah, right? I was exactly the word I was searching for. Yeah, where she she starts like going into the city all of the time and hanging out with her friends and smoking cigarettes and going to late night movies because she feels so trapped and her husband is confused by it and she hasn't talked to him about it. She just he's almost like a he's the least complicated character mm-hmm. in this whole thing. He's like a paper doll of a nice mm-hmm. guy, right? And she tall, right? And she doesn't seem to have any like. He doesn't have a personality and she's just like, this is a good man who loves me. I should be happy. And yet I'm not. So that was that was sort of depressing, too. Can we just dig into the bleak for a moment? Mm. Because this is the thing that I am thinking about is the book's bleakness and kind of how to digest it. I mean, when I read about Rachel, who's essentially having a nervous breakdown, Mm -hmm. I also was put into mind of a recent op-ed by Lara Bazelon, sister of Emily Bazelon, about being a single mother and loving her work. Mm-hmm. And it was about, it was a recent New York Times op-ed, and it was just like, uh, how, it, it was essentially about the price that women pay for hunger mm-hmm. of certain kinds, mm-hmm. like hunger, ambition. It's not clear, there is no, well, I'll talk about her gynecologist in a minute, but yes. if we can just leave him off the table, it is not clear who is the devil in Rachel's life. Like, it's not like you get to the end of the book and it, and you're like, oh, her husband's the devil. It's not exactly like that. It's not clear what's driving her. It's not clear why she's driven. I mean, there's like a personal backstory. Uh, there's clearly a sort of dissatisfaction that she is 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 left with. She she's, you know, and was an orphan raised by a cold grandmother. So there, there's explanations of who Rachel is and why she is why she is. But there but 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 essentially what you're left with is like, here's the person who has a tremendous hunger for for herself, for her children, and that hunger is unacceptable. Like, there's no space for that hunger. I mean, this is the way I understood it, which is that, like, in these Philip Roth novels and in the entirety of Philip Roth's writing career, you know, and John Cheever and sort of the men of that generation, it is taken for granted that men can have a tremendous dissatisfaction and hunger for no reason at all. Because life is boring in the suburbs, because whatever, it's just like a thing that visits you sometimes and you may have a wonderful wife and everything may be okay, but suddenly is visited upon you some just like fierce dissatisfaction. And that is just a trope. That's like a novelistic trope. We all accept it, you know? So we're sort of like lulled into Toby's point of view. But when Rachel has it, it's just wrong. You know, and we just don't know what to do with it or like where to put it. And so the only place she can end up is like, you know, functionally homeless, like abandoned by her lover, getting no satisfaction out of that relationship and, you know, sitting in a street park looking like a homeless person. And and that's what I found bleak is like I I, that felt very 19th century to me. And I I just I'm not sure if I want to resist that or like Mm -hmm. be like, yeah, that's how it is. I don't know. You know, well, her her whole downfall is actually precipitated by her husband. Right. Like she doesn't have the breakdown. She doesn't want the divorce. She doesn't even, I believe, initiate the affair 
affair until her husband starts asking for the divorce, right? Like, so he gets bored and and sort of upset with his wife for wanting. And so that is what sort of, I guess, it okay, in that way, it is like her wanting that sort of sets the whole thing into motion. But in a like sort of practical way, he's the one who like sends her off into the wilderness. She was sort of um, relatively satisfied with her life you know I, I, and 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 she's like sort of this this stupid, I mean was she it was just like know. she had this hunger that it was just like I want my children to be and and it's, again it's not clear where it's coming from you're led to believe that it's this crass social climbing well, it's her, but well, it's clear that it has an edge beyond yeah. that but that's I mean, her you know, childhood right, right? right. the whole Toby thing where, sees it as crass social climbing but we see that it's actually it's a part of there's some social climbing but mostly it's driven by her her cold deprived uh, unloved childhood yeah right where she was in contact with wealthy people but not one of them right like that that was sort of made very clear i thought mm-hmm. but but isn't it at the edge of like it, it, it should be at the edge like even the way she does her work is like at the edge of passion obsession like she's clearly very good agent you know and she's a very good talent scout and it's like it's all could be seen as just kind of passion, ambition, you know, want the best, making up for a hole in childhood, but it just falls into a like a dark hole. Like I mean, Toby I, doesn't understand it. Right. Nobody understands it. And so she's alone. I mean, I, I yeah, it is worrisome how close she comes to absolute destitution and that that might be the outcome, that that is not an outcome that I want. However, it doesn't seem that crazy to me because... I I feel like I know where her hunger comes from, not only psychologically, which is revealed more toward, you know, more toward the end of the book, but it also comes from her seeing that she can't play fair. She can't like the, that everything is unfair. So one of the things that happens is that, um, you know, she she's she works hard and she doesn't get a promotion. We, you know, we don't know for sure because she was pregnant, uh, but she doesn't get the promotion. Um, she and she just has to kind of live with it. She has the baby in a way that is, you know, as you mentioned, you alluded to earlier, Hannah, in a very traumatic way. Um, she's effectively, um, you know, physically damaged by a doctor who's doing it for his convenience and for the convenience of his hospital, um, so that she's so that her water breaks. Um, she's and that's very very physically traumatic to her. Um, Soon as she, and she has no place to complain right, about that. Right, it's like she has right. to go to a rape group. Right. Was she really raped? No. Like unless yeah. you fall under the certain categories, right. like you were raped or like you were like you have to be in category X, Y, Z or there's just like no place for your desperation and malaise. You right. Know? And she's she is just kind of generally suffering from life is unfair is that like. Things don't work out as they should do. She goes out. She starts her agency. She's a great agent. She works all the hours. She's mean to her underlings, at least as far as we hear from, you know, from people who we don't necessarily trust this side of the conversation. Um, But But she's like Zika. She's like, uh, sorry, she's like, uh, she's like Ari Emanuel. You know, well, but like, she, well, but it's not she, funny. But yeah, but like, she's clearly a very driven agent, and being an agent is not about being a nice person. However, I also am aware that we only see her, her kind of drive from other people's perspective. Toby, you know, again thinks of her as a terrible mother. It's only because he's not recognizing how 
her not only her income but the work that she does that he doesn't even recognize he just he just doesn't see it and he he's he 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 he's so puffed up with puffed up with his self-regard about how he sees himself as this perfect father which he actually isn't so I, I am worried about us falling for like other people's versions of her um, her workaholism when yes she works hard and she works long but I don't know that we should trust how other people see her work and report okay, wait, it. I have a theory. So I can't remember where I read this, but I read years ago that um, it's a very common fear for extremely successful women, particularly New York women. Probably I read this in the New York Times style section um, that they will become a bag lady, like not just like I'll lose my job, whatever, that they will actually be on the street and be a bag lady. And so I think that's what this is. Mm-hmm. It's like it, there's no middle ground here. There's not like, you know what, I'll just like scale back to, to, you know, 30 hours a week or whatever and spend a little more time with the kids. It's like either I'm on top of the world or buying the Hamptons. Like th- it's this total anxiety that if mm-hmm. if I can't twirl all the plates at once, then I'm just literally going to be homeless in, in Central Park kind of walking around with a bad haircut. There's like there there's all or nothing having it all or having nothing yeah. like everything is everything but is that's so what's stressful. bleak to me yeah yeah that's yes, like madame it bovary it's like yeah. you're yeah. like depressed with your suburban ex- like have we made no progress like a hundred years later you're just kind of dissatisfied with your boring suburban existence and so you end up eating arsenic like that's your those are your choices and that's what i wonder about in this book although there is this kind of like rachel knocks on the door and goes home ending which is like what <laughs> like where did that come come from um yes. so i didn't know what to make of that yeah. well can we sneak in libby for a minute like yeah. she also depressed me i was like because she i don't know how i that 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 kind of trapped also like the it was the combination of rachel and libby which which made yeah. me feel especially suffocated because it's like rachel this hyper ambitious mode okay well that didn't work out so well that left her with no voice like here's an agent who can speak for other people um mm-hmm. but cannot express you know can't find a place to say things about herself or be understood mm-hmm. and then here's libby who made the opposite choice with you know in terms of how we think of women's choices and children and all that and like she makes the opposite choice and she is also has no place to speak except then she writes this novel about i mean I but fe- she's also got no place to be i think there is at least a a, a little bit of hope in her story that she does recognize as the story progresses how these people who she has chosen to be her friends, who she's neglected her, you know, what did you call him, paper doll, hero, husband, um, and her kids, not in a, you know, terrible way, but she's she has neglected them a little bit. She's chosen her dude friends, and she does realize uh, who were from her college days. She does realize over the course of the book that they are not worthy, that Seth is a raging asshole, and that Toby is very, very selfish. He never asks her about herself. He's not interested in anybody but himself. And so I think the fact that she realizes this and that she does write a book that does reveal, um, you know, that 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 does eventually reflect an understanding of these people. I think it, I think that is the hope. Like it feels that to both Toby, especially in his extremes of eating, and Rachel in her extreme ambition. They they both show that like that's actually not desirable, and it feels like Libby is more in the middle. She's she's not 
an extreme person, but she also comes to understand and she comes to kind of recognize the benefits of what she has. So to me, it's like she's more of a, uh, I'm happy in the middle and I'm seeing. But she doesn't have a job. She's, she's... But she has a life. No, she wrote this novel. She does have a job. Is that, she's just does, unresolved. She wrote this novel. Does it become so clear that it's a she, novel that she's written, or, or are we talking about Taffy here? <laughs> like the, this, the, yeah, that Fleischman is in trouble is. I think we're, we are supposed to think okay. is the book that right, she well, writes. I was, I was like just powering through. Actually, I was so like reading quickly because I was, I was sort of addicted to this book for as yeah, bleak yeah. as I did find yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was completely like just, just candy. Yeah, I read it in two days, which is much faster than I mm. typically read books. Um, and I did not yeah. feel bad about that. I, I really enjoyed it. So will you guys answer my question? Like, is it like I don't know how to think about like, is it just like this is the depiction of reality for women? There's a small space you can operate in. You know, you sort of step outside that space and you're a bag lady. <laughs> I Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I like actually I was on a text chain, long running text chain with several people around my age, all of whom had happened to read the novel. And I said, oh, I, I found the gender politics sort of depressing. And everyone else was like, yeah, but maybe we're just not in our 40s yet, <laughs> which which was even more depressing. Yeah. So I can't tell if it's just like I'm living in la la land or there's something like weirdly conservative about what's happening here. I mean, I do. Uh, and Hannah, I do think that there is there is one path that's presented as not being awful. And it's Libby. I mean, I do think that there is a vision of Toby and Rachel both in their own way going too far. Um, and Libby presents a, a version of, of life that is not so extreme, that is not so demanding of, of total discipline, total focus on, you know, on your children's development, on your your path upward. And I feel like she's the more positive outcome. So Libby, I think, is our, but June, our happy outcome. She's a heterosexual mom, like <laughs> trapped in the suburbs. But that's, that's what June's she is. Dream. The... That's June's dream. <laughs> that's what she is. <laughs> I mean, I don't know that that's it's... that's the moral of the waves. Yeah. Is the only. <laughs> I mean, that's what the character the only road she to happiness. Seem, she doesn't seem happy to me. She's in New perf- Jersey. I think yeah. to be I... the least happy of all of them. Oh no! To me, the fact that she at least sees she sees reality she sees the assholeness of toby she sees the pain of of rachel i've been like is it bleak yes it's still bleak but to me that is like an alternative to bag lady or um you know self self-righteous self-satisfied guy who ain't so isn't what he thinks he is well you can see that for the novelist it would make a certain amount of sense to say that, you know, she's talked about being a child of divorce and the impact that had on her. You know, she's talked about a lot of these different issues. I mean, you know, I'm not equivocating life novel so simple-mindedly, but you could see that for the novelist, a path would be not so much that she goes back to her husband, she goes back to the suburbs, that she's mild, but it, but that she that she's a writer. So that, so that you know, the, the, the road to redemption is not like the ro- not like the train to Hoboken, but the road to redemption is the ability to <laughs> kind of step outside and 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 kind of observe right. what's going on and include the women's reality in the story. So it's not actually just Portnoy's complaint. Like it, it, you know, the women get the last word in this novel, and both of them do. 
you know, one in a kind of novel in a in the in the inner structure of the novel, and one in a kind of totalizing way. Like I wrote this, mm-hmm. and so um, and so I think that maybe that's like just a recognition or sort of a, a a consciousness about all this, or sort of like even if the voice that you're giving to the women is a voice of misery, at least it's a kind of it's at least it's a it's an inclusion of their very particular reality in this story of a failing marriage or of dissatisfaction in marriage because as i started it's been like historically the novel of marriage takes for granted as kind of male suburban dissatisfaction so now it's like well there's a female version of this too you know um so that's that's where the redemption comes in is just in in like voicing that you know mm-hmm. how's that yeah. Yeah. Is I can live hope? with that. Any hope there? A little bit of hope? Okay. Good. Well, listeners, we really recommend you read this novel. Fleischman is in trouble. I know we've made it sound bleak, but it will but it's actually unbelievably delightful to read. Will be very recognizable in its how we live nowness. <laughs> um and I think quite new. Um and and uh interesting in its structure and she's such a great writer and observer of human behavior. So definitely high recommend. Well, that... Oh, no, we get to recommend first. Sorry. (laughs) Okay. Um, uh, June, you want to go first? What's your recommendation? Yes. So my recommendation this week is going to be something, uh, an an entire genre that I am experiencing for the first time. And so maybe it will be weird to recommend the thing that that I'm watching because maybe it's not a very good example of this thing. But I love it so much that I can't believe that. So it is a K-drama, that is to say a Korean drama, and it's called Sky Castle. And it's about, it's actually relevant to a lot of the topics we've been talking about today. It's about elite South Korean families preparing their children for life and specifically for college and the extreme lengths that they go to so that their children have an opportunity to get into the three exclusive medical schools, the three most, you know, the kind of the Ivy League slash Oxbridge of South Korea and specifically to medical school. Um, and it is like a great soap opera. It's absolutely devastating about ambition and about kind of living through your children and about discipline. Um, and it also has comedy and it also has a little bit of romance, so very little. It is absolutely not a romance. And it's it's just fantastic. I'm it's there's 20 episodes of this season and I am on I think episode 7 and I am just hoovering it up any opportunity I get to sit and watch. I can't resist it. So I highly recommend it. I'm watching it on Rakuten Viki, which but I just put it in my Apple TV. I just searched for it and um found it. So Sky Castle, my first K-drama, which I think is a really good one. I, you know, my daughter was making fun of me. I'm not allowed to mention her on the show, but since it's the last show, I'm going to do it. She, um, she's she's making fun of me. She's like, "You're going to recommend that women talk to each other." It's like, "Yeah, I am." No, I'm not going to recommend that. Um, so I tried to do in my head as I was coming over. I was like, "Yeah, you guys should keep your minds open and talk to your girlfriends about things, and don't assume you know anything, and keep up the open conversations." And you know, the thing I love about this show is. Um, working stuff out like just I, I I this is really I'm not doing this well uh, with the lack of corniness but I do will miss that and I was thinking oh my god so the thing I really have to establish in my life is finding people 
who are as smart and awesome as the two of you to work like Impossible. work stuff out with. <laughs> Impossible, I know, but not like just reinforce or just like read and then I already know, but like figure stuff out with, you know, which has been such a beautiful thing. And I've basically done that with you guys instead of like doing finding people <laughs> to do it with in my um, day-to-day life. So I really, I really recommend it. It's um, my real recommendation is years and years, by the way, that British oh my God. <laughs> near future drama. It's so good. This six-part drama on BBC One, which is about this particular family, the Manchester family, and it follows them sort of from 2019 to 2034. So it's a second Trump era and it's the aftermath of Brexit and... Uh, it's really, really great. Um, and, and it's made by it's Russell really great, T. Davis, who is the one of, I think, yes. maybe the greatest uh, TV writer in Britain. And there are lots of good ones, but yeah. he's the best. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's amazing and I love it. But um, but yes, um, somehow, please, you guys can articulate my corny recommendation better than I can. But it is the thing that I genuinely recommend is find some friends who you can like start from a without a lot of fear and 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 sort of figure out what you actually think in the details and nuances about the million things that are happening um, in addition uh, to listening to the waves, but also do that in your own life. Life, which is what I have to do. Hannah, I know people who have article clubs, like they instead of doing a book club, they just read an article or two and talk about it. I feel like that can be a version of this for people in their own lives where, you know, if you if you like choose the right article, you can do it that way. Although I've never been in an article club, so I don't know. I think this is our article club. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of what we do. It's true. I've actually had people write yeah. me over the years where they're like, oh, we read this article of yours. Will you come to the article club? Or we were wow. trying debating about whether you meant this or that in your article or whatever. So I think that's really good. So you can start by listening to the waves and then having your own article club on alternate weeks when <laughs> the waves is not on the air. Um, Noreen, what do you got? Well, I wish I had a summarizing goodbye, but instead I'm going to squeeze in two <laughs> two novels. Um, one I'm going to recommend now because this is my last show and and it's not out till the fall, but I won't be doing this show in the fall. And it's by a man, I know. Um, but it's The Topeka School by Ben Lerner. Ben Lerner is one of these novelists who on paper I should hate. He's like, you know, like was this wonderkind guy who writes these, um, you know, thinly veiled memoiristic things about his interior monologue. And uh, yeah, it just sounds so hateable. And yet he's such a wonderful writer and um, observer of the world. And so this latest one is about essentially his adolescence in or you know someone named Adams adolescence in Topeka Kansas where his parents uh, are shrinks at an institute a sort of European emigre institute in the middle of Kansas and so he's sort of a little bit of an other in this town and yet trying to fit in and he is Hannah I actually specially recommended it because he is a competitive high school uh, debater um, and that is a huge theme mm-hmm. of the book and the way that he is like working things out about the world is partly through that and it sort of flashes between his perspective his parents perspectives and the perspective of someone named Darren who is sort of like mm, sort of a Faulknerian character but he's also like a everyday Topekan anyway it's they're pitching it as sort of masculinity in the Trump era and the and and the sort of seeds of what we're living in now and it kind of is that 
So if you're interested in gender from a male perspective, I would I would read the Topeka School when it comes out this fall. And then um, I'm only halfway through this one, but I, I'm so into it that I'm just going to recommend it because, yeah, last last one. <laughs> um, I finally opened The Milkman by Anna Burns. Have either of you read that? No, I want to. But I yep, I read it. I did read it. I did. You, it is it is actually cool. It's amazing, and but I, um, for my new book club, Noreen Malone, inspired by you, yeah. by jealousy of your book club, one of the people chose the milk. It's very hard to read, but I think just like brilliant. Yeah, I okay. mean brilliant. There are people in the group who didn't like it, but it is. I, I think it's like a real genius kind of voice, like really yes. unusual and weird. You so know? that I um, had been putting it off. So so it's a it's a novel that doesn't explicitly say it's about Belfast during the Troubles, but it is about Belfast during the Troubles. It's about um, a girl who is sort of targeted as a love object by a member of the IRA who is referred to as the milkman, although he's not really a milkman. But yeah, the voice is really arresting because she doesn't use proper nouns at all. She'll she'll say middle middle sister or younger sister or, um, you know, like revolutionary. She never says IRA. She never says loyal. She never says any of those words. And instead, it makes you think about what you're actually describing Mm -hmm. and I had put it off because I was sort of like "Uh, it's like it's like an artsy book about uh, like a like a you know like a an embattled trauma and there's like a harass I was just sort of like I know I should read this I know I should read this and it I think it's incredible I think it's really vivid and smart and funny even I yeah so I find it hard reading because I've that's the thing that has put me off that it's like it's a hard book to read which Anna you just said but um (laughs) It's a hard book to enter. It's like yeah. it's just hard to enter because it's a little bit distant. And so you have to kind of sink into her voice. It's not mannered. That wouldn't be the right mm. word. It's just um, it's a particular. world. Yeah. It's deep in a consciousness like you're entering into someone's mind. Um, and it's fanciful in a certain way just because of the reasons Noreen described. And, you know, sometimes characters talk in her voice. Um, but it's like you're hearing, you know, it's like an early amazing scene where the guys who's her boyfriend. She doesn't call her boyfriend. I forgot what the maybe boyfriend or something uh, like that. It's, it's maybe like, boyfriend, something like that. And he is getting together with the dudes and like building cars. And but she's describing it. So it's like her particular voice describing this thing, which has all this violence and subtext in it. Um, so you, you're just kind of watching things pierce through the surface of how she's describing. It's just like nothing is straightforward. But it's also very much about language, I think, because that's a situation in which Everything has so much symbolic meaning, mm. like where you stand, where you shop, how you mm-hmm, dress, which mm-hmm. school you go to. It's what like you're in you every in. single little what street you live on. Every little thing is so loaded with symbolic meaning that she 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 kind of does a trick where she does that about language. It's like a very literary novel. Yes. And so she plays a lot with words and puts them in other people's mouths. And I think that the that's a kind of corollary to what's happening in that situation. So it's it's really brilliant. I mean, it's really, really brilliant. And I think it's engrossing. But so, so the situation where I was reading it was like poolside and floating around a pool, at, which is like I was able to just concentrate on that. Like I had no yeah, other yeah. responsibilities. It wasn't like something I was dipping into for five pages before bed. Mm-hmm. And I think if I... Well, and which is now my circumstance and I've been like not making progress. So I think like it's a weird kind of a beach read or a train ride read. Mm-hmm. Um, read it when you can like concentrate for stretches and get immersed. 
Yeah, and it is also a Me Too-ish novel in addition to being a Troubles novel. And so it does like speak to what we were just discussing, like how little space you can move or be in a situation. She's constantly hounded. She constantly has to fit into the world where the rules are already laid down about how you are allowed to be a woman and where the violence is. And just like you also get the sense of a woman kind of tiptoeing in an extremely narrow space and being watched and hounded the entire time. So um, um, it's much more violent situation than Fleischman is in trouble, but it, it is a similar set of themes. Okay, well, that was our fifth topic for the week. <laughs> um, <laughs> We're going long for the last one. Exactly. We're going long. We're the last show. We get a little, little bit of indulgence. So I will say this slowly. That was our show mm. for today. Um, thank you <sighs> to our wonderful producer, Danielle Hewitt, our production assistant, Alex Barish. Both of you have been amazing. For June and Noreen, I am Hannah Rosen, and The Waves will be back with you next week. Bye. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.